This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 62 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I'm really excited to have Dr. Ambrose Pass-Turner on as a guest. I have been wanting to have someone on the show who has a background in mental health, as well as experience working with the criminal justice system. So I was really excited when Dr. Ambrose Pass-Turner reached out to me. She has over 20 years experience working in the mental health system. She's also an expert on working with behavioral and emotionally disturbed children, adults, and families and offenders within the criminal justice system. And she is a doctor of counseling psychology and the owner of APT Counseling Services, LLC. And she's also a professor at Grand Canyon University in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and Georgia Military College. In this conversation, we talk about red flags of anxiety and depression in kids, as well as the signs and symptoms of abuse and trauma that you'd want to look out for, whether you are a parent or whether you're a professional working with kids. We also talk a little bit about the school to prison pipeline, including what it is and how to take steps to prevent it or really prevent kids from going down that path. And then we also have an interesting discussion about special education eligibility and IEPs and 504 plans when kids have a diagnosis like anxiety or some other mental health diagnosis and just how you can work through putting educational accommodations in place for kids who have diagnoses like those. Um, We also talk a lot about self-talk, how important it is, and the role it plays in developing kids' self-esteem. And then finally, we wrap up by talking a little bit about some of the current things that are going on in the world, how it's impacting kids' self-esteem, and also talk a little bit about how to encourage kids to take care of their mental health and do things that are good for them emotionally, even when they're resistant or they don't want to work on it. So I think you'll find this conversation really valuable if you are interested in supporting kids. Now, before all my interviews, I always like to mention resources that you can sign up for that I offer so that you can get on my mailing list and learn when episodes go live, and also so you can have a good resource at your fingertips. So in this interview, we talk a lot about emotional health, but if there are academic issues on top of anxiety, then that certainly is not going to help a child be well-adjusted. And honestly, it can actually add to anxiety if kids are not feeling successful in the school setting. And one of the most common things that comes up is language processing and just being able to process language that is needed for things like comprehension, writing, reading, All of those things can cause a lot of stress if you're not quite sure how to put a sentence together so that you can understand the messages and the text that you're reading, as well as compose complete, coherent sentences when you're doing a writing assignment. So that's why I've created the Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure. It was designed specifically for SLPs, but if you're not an SLP, you're certainly welcome to check it out. In this ultimate guide, I walk through the top four sentence types that tend to lead to comprehension breakdowns. When you address these sentence types directly, it can have a huge impact on comprehension. It can impact a student's ability to process what they're reading, as well as impact their writing performance. So if you want to grab that free guide, all you need to do is go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. So now, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Ambrose Pass-Turner. 
So today I'm joined by Dr. Ambrose Pass Turner. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I thought we could start off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what your background is and what you do. Okay. Um, my name is Dr. Ambrose Pass Turner. I'm a doctor of counseling psychology, a licensed psychotherapist, professor, and author. I've been in private practice for over 20 years, and my practice focused working with um, um, family, families, children, and um, offenders within the criminal justice system. Great. Um, so, yeah, that was when when I saw that you had worked with the criminal justice system. That was something that I've really wanted to dive into. I know that that's a question that a lot of my listeners have about you know, how to work with kids. So I thought that was really interesting. I definitely wanted to get into that today. So what, when typically, when people typically come to see you in your practice, what are some common things that families and kids are struggling with? Well, a, a lot of time, um, majority of uh, the referrals will come from the school system. Um, they're having problems in school, uh, behavior problems. We're seeing a lot of anxiety, um, depression, and, and things like that. And so usually they will refer them to me. And from there is when I begin the process of working with the children and the parents. So do you have a particular age range where kids are commonly referred or is it kind of all over the board? The youngest children, the, the youngest children I work with is two years old. And we just all over the board. Yeah. Yeah. So what typical, like if, if kids are referred from the school, what usually prompts that? Usually they're not um, getting along with other students in the class. Sometimes they have some inappropriate behavior of acting out, mm -hmm. um, not listening or paying attention. And sometimes children have things like um, anxiety and stress. They don't do well on tests. They're not completing their assignments and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it, it just depends. And sometimes there's some, you know, I have kids that um, fight, you know, uh, maybe fighting in class, fighting in class and things like that. So it's just a variety of different things that bring them into the office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine. And, you know, so one of the things and one of the questions that comes up a lot, because so again, a lot of the, the speech pathologists that I work with and you know the teachers, parents, anybody who's listening here, a lot of times they are working with kids who are getting special ed services. And I know that sometimes some of those things that you mentioned are more common with kids who are getting services. And then one of the other concerns that's been brought up is the, the whole idea of the school to prison pipeline. And so I was curious how much you knew about that and if you could speak to what what that actually means well i i think what what, what it means is that we're not uh, really doing enough to educate the children to prepare them mm -hmm. um so what happens is that we see a lot of them getting into the juvenile system mm-hmm so I think it starts with with education and, and, and being able to teach them the skills that they need to deal with um, the emotions and things that are going on in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. But it's easier sometimes to get to get them in the criminal justice system than to keep them in school and to continue to educate them. Yeah. You know, and that's why that's why self-regulation of children's emotions are so important. Mm -hmm. Because that's where it starts in the early childhood ages. If we can teach them to better self-regulate, you know, those coping skills, mm -hmm. then that will transition as they go through the stages of development. And that's why we have a lot of adults who have um, stress and depression, you know, because they didn't really, at a young age, we, don't, we didn't learn how to properly deal with those emotions. So it starts there. Right. Yeah. I imagine that would be huge. And I think that sometimes people just don't know how to respond and like how to, how to support kids. I, it's great that they're referring them to you, but 
what mistakes do you see people making, whether it be professionals or parents? What mistakes do people make with regards to helping kids self-regulate and understand their emotions? Um, I think sometimes we don't listen as much as we should. You know, I, I think we really have to, when a, when a little person come to you and, and they're talking to you and telling you how they feel, I, I think we do need to do more listening and understanding, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, if they're going through some issues or they have a little concern, like Jim didn't want to play with me today and you just like, well, you know, you know, it'll be okay. Right. But just listen and try to understand and then try to help your child process that and work through that. You know, maybe Jim was having a bad day today. Mm-hmm. We don't always have good days. There's days when you don't feel like being bothered. You know, tomorrow will probably be a better day. Mm-hmm. You know, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, understanding the their own feelings and the perspectives of others. I know that that is huge. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So when you're working with, I know it probably varies depending on what type of, you know, how old the child is and their background. But if you were like, let's say that you got a referral for a kid who is elementary age and is showing some of those things that you mentioned, whether it be, you know, some of the more minor things like not wanting to do their work versus more severe things like physical aggression, what's usually the the type of intervention and the things that you would do to try to figure out what's going on with, with a younger child? Mm-hmm. Well, whatever type of intervention I will utilize is going to depend on that child. So the first step is for me getting to know that child um, because I like to incorporate a lot of reading and games. So really, in all my clients, whether it's children or adults, they dictate the intervention that we utilize mm-hmm. based on them. If it's a if it's a younger child, like I work with, an example, like a, someone with autism, mm-hmm. you know, I'm usually on the floor with them, right? You know, and and, and just trying to get them to just modeling and doing certain things with them and getting them to repeat certain things to me, and you know, and things like that. Um, I use a lot of um, activities. I even use my book, Rex's Journey. Right, yeah. Because it helps. We can talk about these emotions. We can actually see how he worked through his emotions and how he's feeling better. But I will say it just depends. All of my treatment plans are individualized to meet that person need. I never go, I never know what I'm going to do. I just sit, sit back, observe, and get to know that person. And then it just say, okay, let's go here you know, but yes. So I wanted to ask you about how you would work with older kids, but you mentioned your book. So can you talk a little bit about what, what inspired that and tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I was inspired by what I experienced every day in my daily practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been on the journey with parents. I've seen their tears. I've seen their concerns. And I know that it's impossible for me to see every child, but I can write a book and I can share the techniques that I use in my practice. And I know that it works. You know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for, for children. You know, not all the children that um, I see are special education kids. You know, sometimes I have to work to try to give, get them the extra help and say, we need a 504. Mm-hmm. Contact that school and tell your teacher we need a 504. Um, you know, and I have been asked, okay, for IEP, would you ask her to write up an IEP for this child? And I'm, yes, I'm going to write it up. <laughs> exactly how I want it, you know, right, things yeah. like that. Um, so I'm a big advocate uh, for them, but I, I think it's the concern. I, I've seen parents sometimes, they just don't know what to do. You know, the the school is telling them this. They don't, you know, negative things about your kids, things that are going on. And I just try to help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that the IEP process, like I was I was in it. And 
even the teachers, sometimes it's confusing for the people who are going through the process and having to implement it. So I can imagine that it's really difficult for parents to navigate all of that and to even know what to ask for. Like, I'm sure that a lot of them, and this is a question that comes up a lot is, you know, what's the difference between an IEP and a 504? And how do I ask for, how do I ask for an evaluation? And is this something that should be done? Is that something that comes up a lot where parents are just like, what do I do? (laughs) Usually the parents don't know until I bring it up. Mm. You know, I would say your child has an anxiety disorder. It's interfering with with, um, taking test time. You know, the grades are failing. The pediatrician has already, you know, and I get a lot of referrals to the pediatrician, so we'll work together too. To try to, you know, so once they come over and I'll, you know, the pediatrician said, we think he has anxiety and and I'll do my assessment. It is his anxiety. So we can get a 504 plan to just make some modifications. Sometimes they have not heard of that, you know, and so I have to educate them on the 504 and the difference between the IEP. Yeah, for sure. Because I imagine that some kids the accommodations might be enough. What what typical, and I, I know it totally varies for kids, but what kind of accommodations have you seen be effective for kids with anxiety? Um, with, with children with anxiety, sometimes um, limited, let's say a class might have 20 questions on a spelling test. Mm-hmm. Let's just give them um, 10 to 15. And then you allow them more time. Mm-hmm. And then you allow them sometimes if they need to uh, do some breathing techniques or walk outside the classroom to get themselves together, you allow that. Yeah. So obviously you knows on um, um, IEPs and, and uh, 504s for children who may have anxiety disorder. That, yeah. See, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that I've seen the shortened assignments a lot when it's... You know, the the people want kids to be accountable, and I think that's really important. But at the same time, the whole point of the assignment is, can you show me that you can do the skill? And if you've done enough, does it really matter if you've done an extra five? (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I, I and I get I know that sometimes I've gotten that concern from people and I get that um, because, you know, they think, oh, it's not fair and well, I think what what has been said is what is it fair is where there's balloons and cotton candy. <laughs> Life isn't always fair. So obviously everybody needs something different. So mm-hmm. and the, the extended time and separate settings I've seen utilized mm-hmm. as well. I'm wondering, do they ever do preferential seating where they can sit up close to the teacher and so they can ask questions? Is that something that helps as well? It, it does, especially with children with ADHD to help mm-hmm. them stay on focus. Now, I've seen that mostly used with children with, um, with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will, the teacher will place them in the front so that she can have access to them. So when she sees them going off track, she'll like, hello, Johnny. Yeah, gently. <laughs> just kind of give a little reminder. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a common one I've seen as well. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, cause, cause you, you mentioned that you have uh, a background working with kids who, and I'm not sure if this is the educational label that they have. And there's, there's the emotional disturbance label, which is one of the eligibility categories for, um, you know, that, that where kids can be identified and get services in the school system, whether it be they're getting accommodations through a 504 or whether they're getting services through an IEP. And, and I don't know if this is true, but some of the social workers that I've worked with have said that it's really, really hard to um, evaluate and and qualify uh, and find the data needed to qualify a student under that particular label. And I'm wondering if that is something that is specific to my area or if that's something that's true globally, where that's kind of hard, a very hard area for them to figure out how to qualify a student for services in the schools. Are you talking about the um, social emotional area? Yeah, that is just like academic, it's cut and dry. They, uh-huh. they should be reading here, they're not. But then finding the data to have the criteria to say this child 
qualifies under this area, you know, is have you found that it's kind of hard to get services yeah. in that area? Well, it, it it is under that. Yeah, it is under that area. But that's why I think that if you have a child who has social emotional, you can really find other diagnoses under that areas that will help because most kids who who, who will have that will also have demonstrate some anxiousness, frustration, and anger. Mm-hmm. And those are things that we see in anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. the reason why they're having that, because they can't self-regulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's just ways to get, to get around that where that doesn't have to be the main mm. diagnosis. Yeah. You can bring in other. I, yeah. And I imagine, like you said, ADHD, there could be. Uh-huh. I've seen kids qualify under the area of other health impairment where it's like, I just know when I was on the IEP team, we're like, we've got to get this, this child help somehow. We want it to be officially Mm -hmm. in writing. So, and, and then emotion, you know, ED was kind of hard. So we Mm -hmm. were with OHI. So they would get something. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, everybody's like, I don't care what the paper says. I just want the, the child to get to get them some services. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I, but I, you know, like I said, because you, you, you have so many, when you start looking at the DSM five and the different types of diagnosis, there are so many diagnoses that kind of overlap, yeah. you know, each, each other. It, it right. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It certainly helps when there's a diagnosis from outside, though, with having the information you need to be able to check off all the boxes and do what you know that the, the child needs. The times, yeah, and I agree, and that's I think that's very important, especially when you're when you're working with um, working with children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. What about so we talked a little bit about younger kids, and and you mentioned that you do a lot of a lot of things to build rapport and engage. What's it like when you have a referral for a student who is older, maybe junior high and high school, and and they're a new referral and they haven't really had services and they're they're presenting with some challenges? How is it different for an older child? Well, what we do know that adolescence is one of the most difficult groups to work with. <laughs> yes, I have. So there, <laughs> there are there are a lot of. Uh, I'm in Columbus, Georgia. And so there are a lot of my colleagues that don't work with adolescents and they send them to me because mm-hmm. they are. It takes a lot of uh, rapport bu- building with them and things like that. And, and especially if they're not, if they don't want services yeah. and their parents are making them come to services, you know, um, but basically just teaching them different, depending on what's going on. I'm seeing a lot of, I will tell you, I'm seeing a lot of more depression in that age group, self-harming behavior and, and, and stress and anxiety and, and things like that. So it's just teaching them different types of techniques as, as, um, as far as, you know, how do you deal with the, the depression and trying to find out the source of the depression and then helping them work through that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, I give them stress management tips, you know, uh, things to do uh, to better help them. Um, cope with their anxiety and things like that. So it can be very interesting mm-hmm. when you're working with um, that middle school up to 18 in groups yeah. sometimes. But then sometimes when they, you have some kids that ask their parents, I need to go see and talk to someone. And those are the ones that are more open to it and, you know, do great with the two. Yeah. I mean, I imagine if you're asking for it, then <laughs> you get it yeah. be on board. That's part of your part of your job is done uh-huh. <laughs> and ready to go. So I'm I'm curious about obviously the last couple of years, there's probably more of the depression and anxiety with all kids. But but that age group as well, because things went online and people got had more screen time. Um, it, it, you know, I, it, it seems like there's sometimes the, the solution can be counterintuitive where it's like, are they stressed out because they're too busy or are they stressed and depressed because they don't like, they're not fulfilled because they're not doing things that they enjoy. How do you tease out what's going on there when that's the case? Um, when, just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, through exploration 
and that's finding out what's going on with them. I think the pandemic has been very difficult on children, adolescents, you know, um, because they couldn't do a lot of things. Sometimes school went online and, and mm-hmm. some of them, especially the children who had ADHD and anxiety, they had a lot of difficulties trying oh. to adjust to the new format. Right. So for me, it's just talking to them in exploration of their feelings and their thoughts, you know, and then working from that. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you, when you are exploring things with a, a child and you realize that there's probably something that they could be doing that would help them feel better, but they're just not open to it yet, but you're pretty sure that that's something that they need to do, whether it be like, you know, again, one thing that I think of a lot is that kids are doing a lot of their, having their, a lot of their relationships online rather than in person and some, and they're, they're getting a little bit more restricted in their interests. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like this immediate dopamine hit of, you know, checking my Instagram and seeing who liked my images and that feels enticing, but it's probably not what's going to help them feel good. They probably need to get out and do some real life activities, but I know that sometimes it can be hard to get out of your comfort zone. So how do you, how do you work through that with a child who doesn't quite realize why they're depressed or what, what they would need to do in order to feel better? You know, I, and, and, and we do talk a lot about this in some of my sessions with some of the older kids, um, because socialization in person is very important to build your social skills, mm-hmm. you know? And so I just try to encourage them to like activities, go to games, go hang out with your friends, you know, go to the mall, mm-hmm. you know, because that will help you. I always try to find out before um, all of this happened, um, what did you enjoy doing? What was, you know, what made you happy? And they would usually tell me, so maybe you can't hang out with uh, 10 or 15 of your friends like you used to, but you can talk to your mom and see if she would allow a couple of your friends come over mm-hmm. to come over and things like that. So I just always try to encourage, you know, them to, to just get out because we they do need to get out. They do need to leave the phone alone, you know, the computer. We, we need, you know, we have a whole generation who communication skills have gone down. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh huh. And their socialization skills. You have, you have. I've I've had um, students that would come into my office and don't even won't even look at you, just hold their head down. Mm-hmm. You know. So I, I think that we we you know we have to encourage that and and because we need socialization, we need communication in person also. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I found I and I like I said I have a a middle schooler at home and there there's sometimes some resistance to things and then it's like, oh, she realizes she likes it. You know, there's there's always that eh, I don't really feel like putting my phone down, but then, you know, and then there's just just this happy person underneath that wasn't quite there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I noticed so it like- in myself too where I'm like, I need to get out more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It needs to take a break. And then once, once yeah. I do that sometimes too, and I say, wow, I feel so much better. Thank you for taking me horseback riding this weekend, my husband. Take me yeah. on horseback riding. We got out and rode horses for the group, you know, and, and things like that. But yeah, sometimes you just need to get out and, and meet other people and, and just, you know, socialize because we, we have to work on our socialization skills and communication skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting how when you look at how long the pandemic was, where it's like, like my, my stepdaughter was at the end of fifth grade when we, when this started and then there was, and then she was a seventh grader when it was sort of normal again, like that's just, and I can't imagine your fresh first year, freshman year of high school being online or Mm -hmm. your first year of kindergarten being online. My, my nephew was in kindergarten and he was just heartbroken. He was like, what, I can't go to school anymore. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think sometimes, you know, you know, dealing with the pandemic, I think it was difficult on us as adults and parents. And sometimes I don't think we realize how, you know, confusing it was to the children also. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. For, and I think that sometimes they don't, didn't always realize why, you know, you don't always realize you're feeling all these things and you don't know how to process them or understand Mm -hmm. them. What do you do when you can tell that the child doesn't quite have the language to express how they're feeling? How do you help them to process that and kind of tease it out? Um, Drawing. They like to draw. And so we can, they can always draw, even if they can just draw stick people in their house and their family and things like that. And so I can explore it through the drawing mm-hmm. of what they're trying to say and, and what that, they're thinking and what they're feeling. Hmm. Is that something that older kids find interesting as well? Is this something you kind of use across the age ranges? It's in the pan, mostly at elementary schools with, uh, with older kids. Um, they will talk to you. Yeah. If they like you Mm -hmm. and if they get to like you, they will share and open up, but they like playing games and things like there's so many games out there. If you have someone that's having anger issues, they have bingo games. Someone has having anxiety, you know, so I have different games in my office. We're engaging these games. And of course, if they win, they get a prize and things like that. Mm-hmm. And things like that. And I also give them like different worksheets. If we're, we have self-esteem issues, this is this is what I want you to work on. And then when you come in next time, you know, we'll go over it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine the game would kind of just break the ice a little bit or take the pressure off of why you're there instead of just mm-hmm. there's this huge elephant in the room and it's scary and awkward and <laughs> relieve the tension a little bit yeah but most like I said if they if they like you you know they will they open up when if once they feel comfortable with you and you're able to you know to develop a relationship with them you know you can't shut them up mm-hmm. they, they're happy they're smiling <laughs> that is so you interesting have to work a harder you have to work to to, to win them over for sure mm-hmm that's kind of interesting when the floodgates open, when it's like, you know, you have, uh, I remember I had a student who was, he was very quiet and introverted and his teacher was like, oh yeah, he never talks in class. I, I can't get a gauge on him. And we started talking about, he was into running. He was like yeah. a, into track and I, I'm also into running and we started talking about it and he's just like talking, talking, yeah. talking my ear off. It's interesting how that happens where it's like, oh, there it is. There's my entry point. There has to be, there definitely, I think when you're working with older kids, there definitely has to be a connection, mm-hmm. you know, and once they feel that connection, they open up, you know, so. Have you found that our kids still, you know, again, with, with the online stuff, I think that the, the interests of kids have changed. There used to be you know, again, more, more in-person things. Part of that was just what was going on in the world, but how, how have kids interests shift shifted over the last 10 to 15 years and what you're seeing? You know, I think that they, they just want to, I think they're more into the social media. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. The TikTok and, and, and posting things, you know, and I think that they're always like they're into their friends. Because that's how they they communicate with their friends, you know, and then things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think just definitely the social media, yeah, is you know the what is it? The, I don't know the Snapchat, the the live, you know, all of that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's 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 them, you know. Um, how do you help uh, help families set? boundaries around that seeing as how that is how kids interact you don't want to you know not let them interact the way that kids are talking to each other these days but at the same time have healthy boundaries around screen time I think that I think that we should just set up some structure and some rules you know just like dinner and dinner time we're all going to eat together Mm -hmm. so could you please just put your phone away during dinner you know Sometimes family members may have movie night or family time and just ask them to, could you please put your phone up during the movie and then afterwards and things like that. I think just being able to have some structure and just set some boundaries and some limits, you know, so that we know that so they automatically know that 
at six o'clock is dinner time, so I can't be on the phone. Mm-hmm. But you best believe as soon as dinner's over, yeah. get into you know, yeah. and, and things like that. But you appreciate that, and and, you, and I think it's important to tell children how much we appreciate them, and thank you, mm-hmm. yeah, and thank you for for not um, you know using the phone to dinner. That was very that's that's great. Thank you so much. You know, just let them know because you know by nature children just want to please us. Mm-hmm. And the more yeah. we praise, they try to do better because they want us to be happy and they want us to think good of them. And that's what I noticed. And I always tell parents, you know, the, the, the small amount of improvement you see in your child behavior, I want you to tell them, I am so great. I'm just so happy that today you stayed on green all day. Green light, <laughs> you know. So that child, you know, probably stay on green all week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that sometimes there's little things that uh, that parents don't realize or just teachers or, you know, anybody working with kids where there's little bits of progress that are progress for them that don't seem like a big deal for you. Like, you mm-hmm. know, even just being able to put the phone down and not having it be a, a big deal, being like, oh, that was that was great that you remembered and. You, it was, so, it made me feel so nice to know that you were paying attention to giving me your undivided attention and, or something like that. And yeah. um, little things that we just are like, I've heard people say, well, why should I praise them for something they should just be doing? Well, <laughs> they're not developmentally where you are yet. So it's a right. big deal for them. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yes. You know, and I, I think that um, sometimes that children do need praise. Mm-hmm. They need it, you know, and I think it helps build self-confidence. It helps build their self-esteem mm-hmm. and make them feel good about themselves. And that's what we want for all the children. Yeah. You know? Especially if they're a child who has been getting in trouble and they've been getting all these punishments. It's like mm-hmm. they, those kids need it more than anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it just, you know, I do think that it just depends on the individual. But I have never met a, a child who did not enjoy being praised. Yeah. I mean, have you ever met an adult that doesn't enjoy being no. praised either? <laughs> yeah, we, we like it. We like to feel yeah. that way also, you know. Right. And- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes people say, like, the way that we talk to our kids, you know, you just... It's just, I think sometimes people don't realize that it's, it's always, if you're just like, do this, do this, do this. And then you don't give them any feedback about when they're doing something well, and it's always telling them what not to do, then it's kind of hard to, to just be on the other end of that and never getting any kind of kind of praise or positive feedback. I think that can be pretty hard. You know, yeah. And I think that it it needs to be a, a combination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're always telling them to, to do this and to do that, you know, just, just, I think what we have to remember that the family system is the first teachers of children, you know, and so that mean that being said, it aids in the development of personality, mm-hmm. relationship building, self-esteem, and so many more. And a lot of things that children learn within the family system is what they're going to carry with them is, is they start to go through the stages of development. Yeah. You know, and so we do know that if we look at the different types of parenting styles that we have, depending on our parenting style, it has a lot to do with how that child personality will develop. You know, how that child will be able to, to do problem solving in the future. Mm hmm building self-esteem. Yes. So what do you, what kinds of things have you seen that are helpful as far as parenting style and what kinds of things have you seen that are less helpful? Well, what I do think is helpful, I think that what's something that's very healthy, I think that we have to foster independence, you know? Um, So it's always, it's good to give children choices but, you know, at the same time, with the choices, you don't want to go overboard with choices, mm-hmm. choices for kids. But I think that that's important um, because you want to, you know, build, you know, self-esteem. 
and things like that, give them choices, make more independent, you know, but try to limit it. I've seen parents say, well, what do you want? You want hamburger tonight, French fries, pizza, chicken tenders. Yeah. And the kid's like, oh, you know, they can't make up their mind, you know, so just limit it to two, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's building at the same time, you know, showing them that um, you're able to make choices independent that what you say, people do listen and value your opinion and and things like that. Um, I think sometimes um, criticizing, I see a lot, you know, a a lot of kids get criticized a lot by their parents and it does, it does not work well for their um, self-esteem and self-confidence when they start to engage with peers and things like that. So I do think we have to be careful with what we say to our children, not only what we say, but how we say things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not what we say, it's how the approach that we use. Yeah. I mean, I imagine with the, with the choices and and those types of things, it's, it it can be overwhelming if you try to throw too much Uh, at once mm -hmm. or if you criticize in a way that is not focusing on what they did, but who they are, where it's like, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a fixed mindset thing versus, Mm -hmm. oh, you just made a mistake Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Because what I found, you know, sometimes people can say things so much that they actually begin to believe that, Mm -hmm. that I'm not smart and that I'm a bad kid, you know, but I always tell them, you know, there's no bad children. You know, because if it was bad and something, we couldn't get rid of it and you couldn't change it. Mm-hmm. It would be so embedded within you. So it's not. So we have the ability to change it. So we're just going to work on it. Mm-hmm. You're not a bad kid. Have you ever worked with kids who just that that idea was just and belief was just so ingrained? How do you how do you start to reverse that if they've just had this? negative self-image for a really long time? Through positive um, self-talk. Self-talk is very important. Yeah. Um, So positive self-talk, but not just talking it, but see, self-talk doesn't do any good if you don't believe it. You have to believe it and you have to know it. And that's when you get the parents involved, you know, telling your kids, kids, how great you are, how how we love you, you know, how beautiful you are. You have such a, such a gentle heart and spirit, you know, and things like that. So and just trying to, and like I said, I have exercises that they can do that will work on that, whether it's worksheets, you know, and things like that. The most important things is that we all have unique qualities about ourselves. Tell me And that's where you start with, tell me some qualities that make you so unique, some things about you that you are just proud of. And then what I try to do is build off of that. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to feel like, you know, you're not smart enough or you're not good enough, I want you to think about those qualities, those things that you just said. But not only do I want you to say it, I need you to believe it. Mm -hmm. I need you to own it. Yeah, I was listening to it was a, another therapist who was talking about working with adults and where like some of these, I don't know, guru people are like, you have to just say that, like they, they want you to to say something to yourself and use this self-talk that's so far off from where your current belief is that you just your brain automatically is like, no, I don't believe that. And what she was saying is that you just have to start with something small that they can believe. And then it's like, okay, like inching closer to, you know, further and further closer to where we want to be instead of just pushing somebody and, you know, like, you know, if they're, they haven't done well in school saying I'm a straight A student, well, that doesn't make sense, but maybe they can talk about one specific thing that they did well, and they can match onto that and pull that in as. You know, evidence that I'm learning. (laughs) I think it's, you know, just important to say, you know, um, what's, you know, what's so unique about you? What what do you, you know, what do you think? What do you think about? And they'll just tell you. I'm like, let's go. Well, you know, I play the piano, you know, really, you know, and you just explore that, you know, not everyone can do that. 
you know? So, yeah, so I just try to take their, what they're good at and, and just try to explore that and let that help that to build, you know, their self-esteem or whatever they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask, um, and I know that, you know, as, as you've said, you've, you work with, with youth, youth in the justice system and you work with trauma. And I know that sometimes it can be hard for parents or for professionals to know, like, is this just, is this just a behavior that's kind of a mild thing or it has there been some severe trauma or abuse that happened that, that we don't know about so what are some of the indicators that something really significant has happened that people should look out for? Sometimes with them, um, just changes in the behavior. If you have someone that was very outgoing and you notice that they are, they want it more of a loner now, don't want to be around family or friends and, and things like that. Um, and if you notice some, maybe some bruises or things that, that are there that haven't been there. I think the the most important thing is just to make sure you pay attention to your child. Pay attention. Um, Because usually when there's any, whether negative or positive, sometimes there's just some change in their behavior. There's something that they may need to talk about or you may need need to explore with them. Um, But it just all depends. And, you know, when we talk about the, the, the sexual abuse or physical abuse i think we have to pay attention because i've seen this so many times where maybe a little girl would say mom i'm hurting in my private area you know and i think you know things like that or or, or boys you know those are things that you need to take them to the pediatrician to get checked out and mm-hmm. just be aware of you know who your children you know are around you know and where they are mm-hmm. you know and, and things like that you just have to, we just have to, I mean, I mean, therapists, we just have to do a complete um, biopsychosocial assessment, you know, to, to get that background and to assess the trauma um, that's going on. And then actually from there, depending on what's going on, that's how we decide to develop that treatment plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think those things um, it's, as somebody who, when you, when you see something like a bruise or something like that, mm-hmm. it's like, whew. I mean, I know that as a person in the school system, that is just, it's, it's scary. You don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, with the, uh, and like you say, the, the, the um, emotional abuse that, you know, you can't, there's not a, you can't see it. Like if you can see a bruise on someone, right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because I even think here in Columbus, if you can call the Department of Family Children, if you feel like a child has been emotional abused by a parent mm-hmm. or someone, they would, you know, and things like that. Um, but that's when definitely would, you know, uh, will play out with kids thinking with bullying by other kids and, and kids just thinking they're not good enough and nobody likes them, you know, and, and things like that. So we just have to just have to um, pay attention because I I do believe that. Children just don't act out without a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether there's a chemical imbalance within the brain, you know, because some of the disorders, it's a chemical imbalance somewhere, mm-hmm. something going on there. You know, I just don't. In all my years, there's a reason. And I think we should listen and talk to them and try to find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I wanted to ask, I know you've got some good resources. Um, you have a book and and you have some other things on your website. Where can people find out about you and what you do and some of the resources you offer? You can go to my website. Um, I have uh, my books. Um, my, my first children book is uh, Rex's journey, helping children um, understand and cope with the emotion. And it's about it's about this young five-year-old who experienced happiness and sadness and didn't understand why. And the book just takes us on this journey and it teaches children healthy coping skills to help them understand and deal with their emotions. Um, I have um, another book, ADHD Warrior, helping children conquer ADHD 
unwanted behavior, but it's coming out. It'll be out in August of this year. Okay. But I also have um, my first book, which is for adults. It's childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, pathway to mental health issues and delinquent behavior. So my books are available on my website, um, Dr. Ambrose Pasturner, um, dash.com. And I also have resources, different types of resources. If you just go look under the resource link on ADHD, anxiety, whatever you need. Okay. Um, so they can just go to my website and there's a lot of helpful information there to help parents and children. Right. Well, I will, I will link to all these in the show notes. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check out the show notes and check out Dr. Ambrose Pasturner's website. She has a ton of great resources on there, and you can get information about any of her books that she mentioned. Again, that's drambrosepasturner.com. I'll have the direct link in the show notes. And then also, don't forget to check out the Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure that's going to give you some key information about how to build the language processing skills that kids need in order to be successful with different academic tasks like reading and writing. There are certain sentence types that make a huge impact on comprehension, and I outline what those are and how to address them in this free guide. So all you need to do to check that out is go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. So again, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.